0: Thank you. <laughs> well, my son just leaned over to me and said, is there going to be a sermon today? <laughs> I said, yeah, but it'll be short. He said, like, five minutes? I said, maybe ten, okay? <laughs> I know we have a lunch. Sarah Collier, I know we got to get to all these things uh, that's happening, so bear with me. Uh, this, is, this is important stuff I feel like uh, the Lord is doing here at Woodmont, and we just want to celebrate all of this uh, We're so honored to get to celebrate uh, just the new life and new families and uh, to celebrate 20 years of service. Uh, It really is a a joint commitment, Carol, I know, uh, (laughs) in in our house what that looks like, and we just appreciate you all so much. I hope you know that. Um, So as I was preparing this month in the Gospel of John, a new series, Jesus Messiah, uh, I had picked out the text, but I was working on Monday morning on the titles, what we're going to call this thing. And I was looking at, at John 1, and, and grace upon grace just jumped out at me, and, and I said, that's what we're going to call this. It's all about grace today. By grace alone, we do all these things. By grace alone, has Richard been able to serve for 20 years. By grace alone, does new family come out of a, a, what could have been a, a tragic situation. It's all by God's amazing grace, and it just keeps being confirmed. I love when you know, my wife said this morning, there's just so much God, just so much God in this the, the verse of the day on the Bible app, John one fourteen that the Word became flesh and He showed us God's glory full of grace and truth. That He's full of grace. That's the verse that we're going to look at in a minute. And then on the radio, I don't listen to the radio. Usually in the mornings I, I, I just pray the whole way in, but I said, you know, I'm going to have a little hour of power on my commute. I'm going to get my praise on in the car. So I turned on uh, the radio and every song mentioned amazing grace, just over and over again, every song. It's just incredible how the Lord does this and so I want us to, to just spend a little time this morning in the first chapter of John and it's, it's one of my, I know I say this a lot but it, it is absolutely one of my favorite books of the Bible it's it's not like any other book that there is in the Bible uh, it, this is totally different yes it's one of the four Gospels but unlike Matthew Mark and Luke John is its own thing Matthew Mark and Luke share a lot of the same material but but John was written many, many years after the first three Gospels was written. One of the early church fathers, Clement, he was a a priest in Alexandria, the north of Egypt, in the late second century. He wrote that, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, meaning the the facts about Christ's life that were laid out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he composed a spiritual Gospel, so long after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John came along and said, I'm going to write a totally different kind of account because I, I intimately knew Jesus. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was in the inner circle with, with Peter and James. James. You know, John was the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. They were fishermen by trade, but Jesus made them fishers of men. And in his gospel, he's not interested in giving a historical account. He's not interested in establishing facts about his friend Jesus. John is interested in helping us understand who Jesus is. It's for helping the world know who Christ is. He, he writes this gospel for Greek pagans who were swamped in all kinds of harmful philosophy about what was really true in the world. And they also wrote it for Jewish people who'd been scattered across the globe. And he tells us himself why he wrote the gospel near the end of it in in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know what that means, Christ? Christ? It's Mashiach in Hebrew. It means the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one of God who would redeem his people. He is the Christ, the son of God. What a claim. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John has an evangelistic intent. He writes so that we may believe in Jesus Christ and that we may have life and have life to the fullest, the abundant life that Christ came to bring us and that by believing in Christ, we would have eternal life as well. So before we get into our text for today, let's back up and and look at some context by reading the first two verses of this great book together. John chapter one, verses one and two. If you're able to stand, let's stand in honor of God's word this morning. John one, verses one and two. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. This is the prologue to John's gospel. He begins his gospel by using a phrase that most Jewish readers of this gospel would immediately recognize, in the beginning. That sounds like the start of the Old Testament, Genesis 1, the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just as the Old Testament begins this whole revelation of God with those phrases, so does John's gospel. And the cool thing about it is, just like the creation narrative in Genesis sets up a new order of how the creation is ordered, so does John begin his new order in John chapter 1. This is the turning point in history, John's saying, when Jesus came, that nothing will ever be the same. After this, it's a whole new way of life. And he sets up the whole thing by explaining the fundamental nature of who Jesus is. He calls him the word, the logos in Greek, the word logos. Logos, it means word, but, but what is a word? A word is a way of communicating, right? We use words to communicate. A word is an expression of what's in your head, of what's, what you're thinking, J.B. Phillips, the Anglican priest who translated the New Testament into modern English in Britain during World War II, he translates it like this. In the beginning, God expressed himself. Isn't that cool? In the beginning was the word, God's word. He expressed himself. But, But John's not talking about some vague, impersonal word, some just mere expression that God uttered. You know, when, when we were hanging the purple cloth on the cross for Maundy Thursday, I say we were hanging it, Andy and Ron were hanging it, I was videoing it as I normally do, uh, very helpful, and I, I put it on Facebook Live, and, and Lil was, was here directing, you know, a little to the left, a little to the right, and she said, just ooch it over a little to the right, and, and I gave her a hard time about, ooch, what is that, that's not a word. And of course, people came to her defense on Facebook because she's so beloved here. And, uh, but amen, amen, thank God for Lil. Um, but this is not a word like ooch, okay? This is not some random word that God uttered. This word is a very personal word. This is a very intimate kind of expression that God expressed himself in. J.B. Phillips goes on to translate that, the rest of that verse as in the beginning God expressed himself and that personal expression That word was with God and was God. And he existed with God from the beginning. This word is a he, apparently. And I know it can get confusing when you hear things at church like, oh, well, the Bible is the word of God. Or I'm going to preach the word this morning. Is that true? Is that what God's talking about? Is he talking about the Bible? Is that what the Logos is? Is that the word of God? No, that's not what John's talking about. Is the Bible the word of God then? Yes, it is insofar as it reveals Christ, the true word of God. Does that make sense? And preaching is also the word of God insofar as it reveals Scripture, which reveals Christ. So it's all the word of God if it's done correctly. <laughs> so uh, this preexistent word John is establishing is, is none other than Christ himself who existed before all time and will continue to exist as a part of the Holy Trinity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's a great mystery, right? But the Trinity is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. We are Trinitarian in our understanding of God, the holy three in one. This is Karl Barth, who's one of the greatest theologians ever of all time, definitely the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He wrote that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That the way that God chose to address the cosmos was through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the expressed word of God. So we better get into our text. Sorry, let's, let's go on to John 14. John 1, 14. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says this, and the word, the, the preexistent second person of the Trinity, God's own son, his chosen self-expression, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The founding dean of my divinity school is the current dean of my divinity school, Beeson Divinity School, says this. One verse summarizes the Christian faith more completely than any other text in the entire Bible. John 1, 14 now, I know we hear this verse a lot at Christmas time, the word became flesh, you know, the incarnation, but it's important all year round. This verse is so uh, key to what it means to be a Christian that we need to talk about it in May as well as December. <laughs> Think about the power of what this verse is saying. John has already told us that this word was God. Not a God, there are many so-called Christian groups today in America and around the world that believe that Jesus was a God. That's not what John says. He says the Word was God, period. There's no getting around that. He is the high and holy God who created heaven and earth with His very Word. And now he says that, that God Almighty became incarnated. That he put on the same flesh that you and I dwell in today. That's, that's part of our human existence on a day-to-day basis. And this flesh is flesh that gets sick, right? It's flesh that gets tired, that has to sleep. It's flesh that gets hungry and has to eat. It's flesh that battles against the desires that, that rage within it. It's, it's this flesh that's prone to disease and decay and death and pain and suffering. You know for Muslims and, and for Jews, even in other religions, the idea that the Holy God would put on flesh is is so scandalous it's horrendous to them. It's anathema to think that the Holy God would put on this kind of flesh that you and I dwell in today. And not only did he become in flesh, but then he dwelt among us it says, I love the the message you know Eugene Peterson who translated the Bible into his own translation, he translates John 1.14 this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? He dwelled among us. He moved into our neighborhood. He became neighbors with us. That, that conveys an intimacy. He, he moved into our neighborhood. God had promised the, the Israelites, his people in the Old Testament, that he would be their God and they would be his people and that he would dwell among them. And they said, oh yeah, he's he's given us his presence on Mount Sinai when we got the Ten Commandments and they're in the ark now. And we put the ark in the tabernacle and God dwells in the Holy of Holies. And then we, we move him to Jerusalem and God dwells in the temple in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple that God dwells among his people. But this is different. This is so different. This is God moving into our neighborhood and living life among us, not just being contained behind a curtain in the holy of holies this verse also says that when god put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood that he showed us the father's glory as only the son of god is capable of showing that kind of glory and that he was also full of grace and truth grace and truth I read a beautiful quote from one of my favorite authors, Randy Alcorn. It's His book, uh, Heaven, is incredible. It's in the library, in the Pastor Picks section of the library. He wrote, what we really need today is Christians who, like Jesus, are full of grace and truth. People with both sound doctrine and warm hearts reaching out to all the needy, including the unborn and their mothers, prisoners, refugees, victims of trafficking, and the poor, all in the name of Christ. Are we these kinds of Christians? Are we people who don't soften the truth of the Bible? We're not afraid to talk about sin or hell or all these other truths of Scripture, but are we also compassionate? And do we show grace for the least of these? I want to be that kind of Christian. Okay, we can spend hours on that verse. We don't have time, so we'll keep going. Verse 15. John bore witness about him. He was the disciple that he loved. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, oh, this is John the Baptist, who comes after me and ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but he has made him known. He's revealed to us, he's communicated, expressed to us, God's own word. Jesus became the incarnate God, full of grace and truth. And from that fullness, we've all received unbelievable blessing. And we can never exhaust the fullness of his grace and truth. We can never withdraw too much of his goodness from his abundance of grace and truth. Because he's full of God's fullness. Colossians 1, 19 says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, back to God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross of Christ. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, so that God could, through Christ, redeem the world back to himself. And here's the thing, when my kids are at the beach and they, they love building sandcastles and, and put a moat around it and they're just running back and forth to the, to the ocean and getting a bucket of water and dumping it on it and running back and getting another water, do, do we ever say, don't take too much water out of the ocean? What if the ocean levels drop? You know, does the beach patrol come by and say, they're taking too much water out of the ocean? We're, we got a shortage. We don't do that because a, a few million Buckets of water won't do anything into the ocean because it's so vast and full of water, right? Such is the grace and truth of Christ. He never runs out. He's constantly 24 7 dispensing of His grace and truth for us as He works to reconcile all things that were lost in the fall back to Himself. And it's all grace, it's by grace alone. It's the word charis in Greek, grace. It implies a favor or a kindness on the part of one who bends or stoops to impart that grace or that kindness. It's a condescension to show grace, to show favor or kindness, and it's totally unmerited. It's totally unearned. It's totally undeserved. Grace is a gift, it must always be a gift. And and what John's saying here is not that the law of Moses was bad and that Jesus was good. Even the law was a gracious gift of God to reveal his ways to his people and his life. John's not saying that that the law is, is a bad thing. The law is showing, you know, God's truth to his people. But Jesus came to graciously fulfill the law, right? Moses was the mediator of the law, but Christ embodied it. He showed us God's ways in the flesh. He put flesh around the grace and truth of God's ways for us. So now instead of focusing on the law as the way of living God's ways, we focused on Christ, on the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ paid the debt that we couldn't pay so that we could be right with God both now and forever. That's the way of life now, abundant life. So what? Well, grace changes things. Grace changes things a lot for you. <laughs> grace must change things for us too. In in three major ways I just want us to focus on this morning. Just three main things on how I think grace should change how we live. First, receive this grace. Grace is a gift that must be received, right? Which means that our hearts must be open to it. Our eyes must be aware of God's grace all around us. Are you hard-hearted today? Do you kind of wallow in self-pity? Do you see yourself as a victim who's been treated so unfairly? Maybe today you just need to open your heart to God's grace and let it come in and receive his gift of grace anew. Is your heart receptive to God's grace today? The second thing it changes is that we have to respond. Such grace demands a response. After you receive it, you respond in gratitude We sang give thanks with a grateful heart for all that he's done. He's given us his son, his word, Jesus Christ. Respond with with gratitude and worship. Again, let's let's drop this kind of poor me mentality that's that's bent in on ourselves and unbend to God's grace and respond with gratitude and worship. And then third, we must re-gift. This is the one time it's okay to re-gift, okay? Re-gift God's grace to others. Let God's grace flow into you and then out through you into others. When others treat you poorly, you can show them grace because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who are we to refuse grace to anyone? We must receive it, respond to it, and then re-gift it. I don't know where your heart is today. Maybe you haven't received God's grace in a long time, and you know that, You've been kind of bent in on yourself. Today, I would invite you to open your heart to God's grace. Pray that you would receive God's grace in a whole new way. And then we're going to sing in a minute, come all Christians, be committed. That you would respond to God's grace. That it would compel you to commit your life to him in worship. You would lay down your life as a sacrifice to him, as a spiritual act of worship. Romans 12.1, right? And then that you would re-gift that grace. Show it to others. When you're mistreated, show them love back. Give grace. Give beauty for ashes, as God does. You've all been shown unbelievable grace. May we show that kind of grace to others. Let's pray now. Lord God, your grace amazes us. It is truly amazing grace that while we were still sinners, that you died for us, that you looked on us and showed compassion and loved us even when we were in full rebellion against you. God, may we receive your grace in a whole new open way today. May we respond to it with lives of worship and gratitude. Forgive us of of wallowing in self-pity and focusing on ourselves. And may we re-gift your grace to others today. As we go forth from here, that we would dispense the grace that you've given to us, showing others divine grace, even when they, did, when they don't deserve it. God, it's only by your grace that we can do this. So we thank you. We pray that you would continue to empower us with it. We thank you for every good thing you've done for us already, and it's all by your grace. We acknowledge it, and we praise you. We worship you for it. Now may we be committed to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.